Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Metascholt, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today, we will talk climate change, marine resources management, and indigenous perspectives. But before starting the episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan Tainapam and Klikitat people sometime immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Klikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kalitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and quotidianly support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land, so it needs to be recognized as is. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating and need to be recognized for their value. I make this acknowledgement to remind us that no diversity, equity, inclusion, or justice work can be done without including the voices and wisdom of Indigenous people and Black Americans whose ancestors were brought to this land as slaves and were instrumental in creating what we now call the United States of America. I encourage you to learn more about the lands you inhabit, the history of those lands, and how to actively be part of a better future going forward together. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Manaoakamai Johnson, and is a Kanaka OEV Native Hawaiian and interdisciplinary marine scientist. He is currently a postdoctoral research scholar in the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science at Arizona State University. Stephen was born and raised on the island of Saipan in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, a U.S. territory in the Western Pacific Ocean. Stephen received his doctorate degree in geography from Oregon State University, where he studied the impacts of climate change on large marine protected areas and how we might use that information to develop regional cooperatives to address changing ocean conditions and shifting marine resources. He completed his master's in biology at the University of Guam, where he studied the social and cultural context of marine protected areas and coral reef fisheries in Yap, Micronesia. The driving motivator in his work comes of his experience growing up under the specter of modern-day colonialism and witnessing climate change impacts in his home islands. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Hi, Felicia. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Um, how are you? Doing good, too. Thank you. And... Um, yeah, thank you for being part of this show. Um, you have a really, you know, impressive um, background, and um, and really interesting too. And so, as I always ask my guest, is um, you know what motivated you to go in that field? I mean, I mentioned it a little in your bio, but yeah, what were really the the drivers? And also, yeah, explain a little more about what you're doing now. Yeah, um, so I think uh, my origin story, as, as some might call this, for getting into marine science and conservation um, is uh, might be a little bit different than maybe most of your previous guests. So I, I grew up on Saipan, which is a 
quite a small island. It's only about 13 miles or 20 kilometers long and anywhere from one to three miles wide. So you're never more than about 10 minutes uh, driving quite slow <laughs> from the ocean <laughs> in any direction. Um, and so, you know, I, I knew nothing other than uh, somewhat idyllic uh, white sand beaches and coral reefs growing up. But I think I was pretty prototypical um, teenager in that I just wanted to get out of home. You know, I think that's something a lot of uh, teenagers or people can reflect back on their time as a teenager. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you grow up, um, you're always kind of looking to to get out of home, right? It's I think it's just a part of growing up. And so um, as a kid um, and even through high school, I didn't want to get into marine science. I actually want to be a dentist, uh, to truth be told. Um, there's only a couple of dentists on island and um, I saw a need because I had all these friends who had braces and they would either have to fly to Guam, which is like a 30 minute plane ride um, away uh, to go get their braces um, adjusted or they would have the orthodontist come to the island and um, do the work once a month. And so I was like, oh, there's obviously a need in my community. So I've always kind of thought in in those terms, but I didn't think I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I went off to college uh, in the in the US in Florida and was starting to work on my degree, kind of like a pre-med type of coursework. And then my cousin was actually, he had gotten a uh, internship working for the local government back in Saipan on coral reef conservation and research. And I talked to him this one summer and a, a light bulb went off. I was like, actually, I don't think I want to spend all my time in people's mouths. I'd rather uh, spend a lot of time, uh, you know, swimming or not just swimming around, but like understanding and learning more about um, the ecosystems that you know, supported um, the the community I grew up in. And so it was, I kind of came to, to this um, career path a little bit later than I think you might expect just reading my bio of, oh, he grew up on a tropical Pacific island. He must have always wanted to, to do this type of work. But um, that's kind of where my, my story started was um, having a conversation with, with uh, you know, a, a close loved one and kind of having that spark uh, go off and, you know, deciding, okay, now I know what I want to do. And so that's that's where my story starts. <laughs> no, it's great. And I can relate a little to you as well. Like me also growing up on an island in Corsica, same thing as a teenager, I knew I wanted to study outside of Corsica. Like Sam, I wanted to leave the island. And sometimes people are like, but you are in a beautiful island. I'm like, yeah, but you, know, you, you don't live there year-round. And sometimes you want to see something else. And... But me, it's true, I was always interested in the ocean, but um, but I can see also how sometimes you take for granted the the place where you, when you grow up. So, um, and I mean, me, it was a sense like, yeah, everything is beautiful, but I thought it was like that everywhere because I was born and raised there. And when I come back, I'm like, oh yeah, it's really, um, it's, it's really pretty. So, you know, I can see, and you can see some issues that you didn't see also before, the more you learn about it. And um but you, you so after you did though your master then in biology at University of Guam, and um, can you tell us then 
uh, a little about your research, you know, uh, while doing your master. Yeah. Um, so after I completed my bachelor's in, uh, in Florida at Barry University, which was a small um, liberal arts school, I, ret I well, first, um, you know, I think this is an interesting part of my story. And, you know, through conversations with friends, colleagues who have also gone through similar academic paths um, as myself, something that we don't talk a lot about. Um, and I think, you know, especially for um, you know, people like myself, you know, people from uh, far off parts of the world or from, you know, indigenous backgrounds, um, minoritized backgrounds is, you know, getting into the advanced stages of a career in um, academia, especially, but even, you know, in ocean conservation, there's a lot of uh, failures that accompany the big successes we have. And so at the end of my bachelor's, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to do more science and more research. And so I actually applied to um, a doctoral program um, with probably uh, naively so with not enough uh, support and um, research from, um, you know, uh, a, a guide, someone who could help me uh, figure out how to do it. And so I applied for a doctoral program and did not get into it. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a, a rare uh, phenomena, but I think it's rare that we talk about not getting into grad school um, it, on, on your first try. And so that was an unsuccessful attempt for me. And so I contacted uh, some folks uh, back home and asked if there was any potential openings for a marine biologist position. And Know, the, the stars happened to align for me there, and I was able to move back home and um, work as a coral reef biologist for the local government. And um, I, the more and more I reflect back, that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened uh, to me for my career, because um, it allowed me to just kind of be in a, a, a safe place, you know, a place I know very well, home, a place that I had social and cultural ties to. And um, I, I got to learn firsthand what it actually means to um, manage and uh, conserve and and protect uh, an actively used resource. Um, it wasn't just something that I was taught in class. It's like, okay, now I'm you know helping run a uh, ecological monitoring program. We're writing up reports. We're uh, presenting the, our findings to um, the Board of Environmental Quality, to the governor's office. We're in conversations with, um, you know, um, biologists who were contracted by the Department of Defense trying to, you know, convince them that you probably shouldn't uh, use this beach that has some pretty healthy coral ecosystems as a amphibious landing training area for your uh, assault tanks. You know, like a lot of... Uh, really um, intense, um, high uh, stakes conversations I got to experience um, very early in my career. Um, really, you know, some of it was trial by fire, but I think um, I learned so much about it and it really helped me understand, you know, all right, um, you know, if you do want to go into research, like this is where most of your work hopefully will make an impact is, you know, in these conversations about how are we going to manage um, these resources, you know, that are threatened by a number of um, factors. And so I spent five years, uh, you know, 
working um, as a marine biologist, getting to uh, learn about how coral reef ecosystems actually work, learn about the threats um, that are happening both at a local scale. So, um, you know, doing some work on overfishing, um, you know, pollution due to um, nearshore development, um, golf courses, all the kind of uh, textbook things that impact coral reefs. But what was really uh, eye-opening and life-changing is in 2013, so about two, two and a half, three years after I started the job, um, the first uh, Saipan and Guam uh, simultaneously at the Mariana Islands were the first place to record um, uh, mass, massive coral bleaching. So we were actually like a year ahead of what ended up being the really big two to three year bleaching event that impacted uh, the entire um, global coral reef um, ecosystems. Um, and so that was uh, shocking because that was something, you know, I remember learning about uh, mass bleaching events that happened uh, during the big El Nino of 1997, 1998, and um, talking to um, you know, previous researchers, um, fishermen on the island, like that didn't happen on Saipan. Uh, there wasn't um, a bleaching event then. And so there was a little bit of uh, like, oh, we're maybe potentially in this very resilient pocket um, of the world where given some unique oceanography or whatever, or Know, maybe some unique biology like the corals here don't bleach and over the course of two summers um, i saw some of the reefs i had grown up on completely transform and disappear like uh vibrant stands of coral now just covered with algae and turning into rubble um in the you know in the span of a year and so uh that that really opened my eyes and broke my heart. <laughs> um, and, you know, you hear a lot about ecological grief and, and it, it, it's real. And, and that, that really kind of turned up uh, my motivation um, to go into um, science to another degree. Um, uh, and, and I say that with the pun intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, after witnessing this, um, I decided, okay, I think I've, I've, I've got a a lot of experience, you know, in um, learning how to do research on coral reefs, how to um, engage in management negotiations and decisions about coral reefs, and how to mitigate um, and work with the local community and context to, um, you know, increase the health of these coral reefs. But then also witnessing um, this bleaching event, recognizing like, it doesn't even like sometimes you can do all this good work on the ground managing the local um, resources, but things like climate change are now kind of um, <laughs> washing over that, making uh, the good work that people are doing on the ground in um, these coastal communities with coral reefs. You know, not not for nothing, but you're making the work a lot lot more difficult. And so um, that that was when I decided that I wanted to. Um, go back to grad school again. So this was uh, uh, the second time and I decided maybe I won't go for a doctorate. Uh, let's start with something a bit more manageable. And uh, so I went and did my master's and um, I had a good uh, friend and mentor who was a 
who still is a um, professor at the University of Guam, Dr. Peter Hauck. Um, he had taken me under uh, his wing and, you know, he had a, he was establishing a lab at the University of Guam. And so, uh, you know, I pitched him an idea uh, for the type of research I'd like to do. And um, he runs a, an amazing research program across Micronesia, um, across all the different um, states and islands in Micronesia. And we found a good fit for the idea I had. Um, and that was to kind of assess not just the ecological condition of coral reefs, but also to try and get an understanding of the social and cultural context in which coral reef management was happening. And I was able to do that uh, on the island of Yap. And so Yap is about 500 miles south southwest of Saipan and Guam. Um, it's got about 10,000 people who live on the main island of Yap, and that's where I did my research. And so that research was um, looking at um, how different communities on the islands were using or not using different social and cultural elements um, in managing their marine protected areas. Um, and so I got to continue doing amazing coral reef ecology work, but I also got to learn how to do some really fascinating, um, you know, kind of social science work. So I conducted interviews and um, gave social surveys, um, learned how to design those, which, um, you know, I, that was, again, one of these, these moments where I was like, wow, I, I feel so fortunate getting to, um, you know, learn this, these different knowledge systems um, and apply them and learn from uh, these communities. And so with that work, um, to make kind of a long story short, we found that um, you know, communities that were really leaning into some of the cultural practices, their management seemed to be a lot more uh, resilient in terms of um, its ability to withstand, um, say, social changes within the community and like the with the social side being more resilient that led to healthier um, ecological communities and so i think often the story we hear is that healthy ecological systems support healthy social systems but what was really fascinating was that we could find this instance where healthy social and cultural systems instead are able to transfer that resilience and health back onto the ecosystem, which I think is a really insightful and kind of novel um, understanding of these coral reef social ecological systems. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and maybe to help also our audience to have a maybe a better understanding or have some examples, can you be a little more specific about, for example, some of the cultural systems, you know, of the island of Yap, some cultural use or you know, or, you know, practice um, related to their marine environment? Yeah. Um, Yap is um, a, an amazing uh, place uh, for a number of reasons. as some of the most beautiful reefs I've ever seen. It's really known for its uh, manta ray diving, uh, which is really popular. But culturally, um, one of the things that is quite unique within uh, the context of Micronesia's region is Yap is one of the few places where traditional land and marine tenure still exist. And so each um, village on the island is able to um, you know, manage uh, 
core reef resources um, in any way they see fit that would work for their community. Um, this also ties into um, issues of access to the resource. And so typically only people from the village are allowed um, free access to the marine resources. So you create almost a closed system so you can kind of eliminate a lot of the um, complicated issues when it comes to studying things like the commons where you could have a, more or less a free-for-all where anyone can go in and access a resource. And so this helped, you know, kind of the investigation of what was going on in YAP is that we had these closed systems to then, you know, really tie like, well, if community X is doing this practice, we know that, you know, it, it it's pretty um, tightly bound. It's not, well, are they doing it? Are they not doing it? Um, because the social system and who gets to use the resource was um, closed. And so some of the things that um, we asked the communities about were um, in Yap, they have these traditional men's houses where um, issues regarding the ocean were um, kind of talked about. And we asked all the different uh, communities that we were able to meet with, you know, do you use the uh, the men's house? How often do you use it? And, you know, we've found quite a bit of variation. There are some communities that would still use the men's house to talk about fishing and the state of their marine resources. And there's other places that didn't use it at all. Um, and and so, you know, honing in on these different um, place-based, culturally specific practices, I think, is really important for understanding, you know, what will and won't work in terms of, um, you know, upgrading um, marine resource management in these areas, uh, you know, because you want to make sure that whatever uh, findings you have and are culturally appropriate. And, and so really making sure that the questions we were asking weren't bland and generic, but actually quite uh, contextual and specific, I think, helped us get um, to the heart of the matter, which is like, oh, the communities that, you know, were doing these cultural practices, using the men's house, um, you know, doing a little bit more of kind of collective decision making and not relying so much on a Western kind of business format of you have a MPA manager um, who might have a team who makes decisions, but instead you have a um, you know, the community is meeting to talk about how they want to, um, you know, address certain, say, fisheries or ecosystem issues. And I, I think that was a really beautiful and powerful finding that we were able to come to. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and after I'm curious of that, what could be some of the lessons learned from that that we could apply to to other areas? But after I understand that it's often like, you know the the context, the place. Uh, you know the it's and the number of people living in an area. I think all that into uh, taking to you know this may change some of the discussions happening on the ground or their format or how they're going to happen and how often. So, but I'm curious of your thoughts of what how could that how those lessons learned could be applied in different places. Yeah, um, I, 
you know, this is a question that I think a lot about, and it's that there's all these different knowledge systems um, that exist in the world. Um, and, you know, indigenous knowledge might be one form, uh, Western knowledge might be one form, but I think you could even expand that up to like, there's kind of a global way of thinking, right? We often will um, try and develop these tools that can be applied everywhere. And those are very useful, but within reason, right? We, we also, I think a big challenge in, um, in a lot of conservation and resource management is, you know, balancing kind of how we use tools that have been developed um, kind of without the cultural context and recognizing when does that tool uh, not work anymore, right? It's like, all right, you might have two types of screwdrivers and, uh, you know, the, the size of the screw might change given um, a certain type of problem, but the screwdriver only comes in one size. And so it's, you know, figure out how can we have these multiple tools that we know um, the appropriate uh, time to use those. And so, you know, while the specifics of any one uh, locality in terms of its culture, um, its traditional um, practices, um, its, its worldview of how it views itself related or not related to an ecosystem are important. And we have to, you know, the, the, the science is also an art in terms of balancing, you know, when do we use which tools um, at the same time? And so I, I guess that's kind of where I've gotten to in trying to figure out, well, what can we learn and glean from, say, this one case study in Yap and, and elevate that to different islands in Micronesia, to different islands across the Pacific, to different ocean basins, you know, like for cultures off of the coast of Africa or in Southeast Asia, you know, and I think it's recognizing we have kind of these big general um, tools that you might want to call like global tools that can get you a certain amount of the way towards figuring out a solution, but then you have to recognize when to stop. And I think that's always the most difficult part is like, okay, uh, this tool has gotten us this far. So now when do we bring in uh, the other complementary tool? Right. And I think maybe even having some maybe flexibility in the tool. I feel like having this tool, but after the community deciding to use this tool and decide to make it his, you know, like make it, you know, have little tweaks here and there, see what would work. Like you said, doesn't work. So I think maybe having a, having a tool that you can um, shape or, you know, change based on, on your needs. So it really fits yeah, the, the needs, the resources, and you said like the cultural views and, and values of the different community. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really tricky work though. Um, and, and I wonder after doing, you know, your master, did you, so when you decided to do your, your PhD, so do you do something like similar and do you take a break between your master and PhD? So how did you, decide to be like, okay, now I'm, I'm going to try again for the doctorate. Now I'm ready. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was probably about after the first year of my master's program, I was like, okay. I, 
think I'm, I'm ready and I'd like to uh, give the PhD another shot. And I was by no need, by no means like extremely confident. I still had some, uh, uh, you know, lingering uh, scars and uh, (laughs) self-doubt and fear. I think we all do. Um, You know, some people use the term imposter syndrome, which, uh, which I think is uh, a thing, but I wouldn't, I don't think I was feeling like an imposter. I was just like, okay, right. I've, um, the last time I did this, it wasn't so successful. It was a little little painful, um, but I, I thought I had a good chance of doing it. Um, and so I went straight into my doctorate. And uh, for this work, I, I think there's a bit of a, a personal theme for me was I, as much as I enjoyed um, doing that on the ground kind of field work with um, diving and interviewing community members and talking to people, um, I, I felt like I needed to get behind a computer a little bit more as, as crazy as that might, might sound. And so for my doctorate, I was like, I want to learn how to like work with climate change models and apply them to ocean conservation. And, and so that's where my PhD started. And, um, you know, for, for my entire PhD, it was really just sitting, uh, reading lots of papers and books and analyzing climate models and code. Um, but, you know, I think like for a lot of folks, um, you get about halfway through and then it starts to change, (laughs) change a bit. And one of the ideas I had just the data wasn't, uh, panning out. And so my, my advisor and I, we had to get pretty creative, um, under a little bit of a, a tight time crunch. And we came up with this, this new idea of, um, of identify using climate change models to, you know, this, this part wasn't new in itself, but to figure out, well, how are the oceans going to change, um, using a often ignored um, measurement of change uh, from information theory. It's called the Hellinger distance. Um, I'd be happy to maybe do a supplementary episode here where we nerd out on some <laughs> on some uh, information theory and math. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's a little bit more of a robust way to compare two um, sets of data to each other. So that's maybe will be the simple explanation for that. Um, but we said if you could do that and you could compare, um, you know, how climate change will impact one part of the ocean and then compare itself to the future and see how different that is. And that, that stuff uh, has been done um, for some uh, marine protected areas, but we decided to do it for the biggest marine protected areas. But then we also want to know, well, the ocean's going to change and it's also going to change in terms of where ocean environments or conditions rather are today might be somewhere else in 10 years in 20 years in 50 years in 100 years and so we used uh, the hellinger distance to find what we called climate analogs so areas in uh, the ocean that are similar to each other but separated um, by time so potentially there's a place in the ocean um, in 2050 that might be off the coast of Hawaii that looks like the waters of Saipan uh, today in 2021. 
And, you know, we think that could be actually very useful, practical information because some of the other literature shows that important um, marine species like tuna, for example, are likely to, you know, follow um, their environmental um, conditions as those shift. And so potentially there are um, right resources that will be moving, but something that doesn't move along with the resources are the the place-based knowledge um, that has been um, evolved and refined to to manage these systems. And you know, we 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 thought that maybe you could develop a framework for building a cooperative based off of these uh, similarities, um, so that people today if they know that they have a good chance of having similar conditions in 50 years can start cooperating. Um, Cause right. A lot of, a lot of our um, experience and lived um, reality is that cooperation is, is difficult and it's difficult because it's a process that takes a long time and it takes a long time because we have to build trust and trust isn't something that just develops overnight. And so we figured if right if you can start uh, climate cooperation discussions today for shifting marine conditions and resources for 2050, that might give um, you know social and political and economic systems the runway to um, you know uh, catch up to climate change, and and so that's where my <laughs> dissertation work ended up going, and so. I was like, I want to use climate models, um, but I inevitably got back to, you know, where my origin story started, which is, you know, a manager's hat and thinking about how am I going to um, manage my local resources in a way that responds to these global um, uh, impacts such as climate change. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really interesting research for sure. And I see, and I like the fact that, you know, how to start collaboration early, because like you said, it take, takes a long time. And you mentioned also like, you know, local knowledge, uh, place-based knowledge, I mean, cultural knowledge, indigenous knowledge, we can, you know, all these knowledge. I was wondering how that is going to fit in, uh, knowing that you're going to have maybe those models and after you have those knowledge and after how do you, how do they work together? Um, so they both, you know, as, because you don't want, I don't like to say that one knowledge is going to be complementary because it's like as valuable as, you know, the, the work we, that is done, you know, by scientists in academia or that, but how do you work with them both? So you can take into consideration those perspectives and and have something that is going to be basically um, really sound, you know, like in how we can find solutions to current challenges or even like have an idea of how to address future ones as well. Yeah, so I, you know, I definitely agree that one of the the big challenges we have is how do we use these different ways of knowing, um, epistemologies, worldviews, sciences um, together uh, in a way that um, you said you might not want to use the word complementary, but right supports and respects. Uh, I think respect is a really key 
um, component of using multiple knowledge systems, right? Is that um, it's not that one is better. It's that these knowledge systems need to respect um, each other in the ways that they were developed in how they're executed and practiced, who gets to access them, um, you know, and what are the ultimate goals of using these different knowledge systems. And, um, you know, I, I think within a lot of indigenous cultures, there is already um, a lot of frameworks for how to use um, these multiple knowledge systems um, to achieve uh great outcomes. Um, so I'm, as you mentioned in my introduction, I'm, I'm native Hawaiian Kanaka O'ivi and in, uh, native Hawaiian, uh, belief systems, there's this concept of Heike Papalua, which translates to dual knowledge. And so, um, traditionally it was a, a phrase used to describe, um, people who they thought had, uh, <laughs> Uh, foresight or nor premonitions uh, people could see the future and um, and so that's one understanding of this dual knowledge is that you've accessed information um, that gives you some view of, of the world ahead um, and recognizing that that information that knowledge might have uh, one meaning and uh, but it might be different from some of these other knowledge systems we have and you know this is one example of understanding kind of a complex set of knowledge systems. And, you know, you can also find something similar in um, the, some of the Maori uh, cultural traditions like Vaka Taurua, uh, which is the double hold canoe. And so um, you, in Maori culture, you can, uh, there's this practice of uh, latching two canoes together um, to kind of make, voyages or complete tasks that an individual canoe um, wouldn't be able to do. And in the Vaka Taurua, and I would point people towards uh, Kimberly Maxwell's work um, on this, um, you have, say, a traditional Maori Vaka, and then you might have a, a Western um, boat, and you could latch them together to um, you know, achieve um, these really challenging goals. And so I think there are a lot of cultural um, frameworks that already um, set up um, places and communities, sets them up for success um, in terms of, you know, having a process, um, which I think is also important, is having a process to work through um, that um, application of the two knowledge systems. You know, if you have a framework for negotiating um when one might be um, the better option over the other, you know, I think that's important. And so, you know, for applying climate change models and climate change adaptation, you know, I think what needs to happen is, is finding the social and cultural systems and processes and frameworks that actually allow an, a pretty easy in, um, insertion of a second knowledge system, you know, um, even some of the first nations of, um, of uh, British Columbia, uh, in Canada, uh, they have the concept of two eyed seeing, which is very similar. It's looking at the world, uh, simultaneously through these, uh, two different, uh, worldviews or ways of knowing and, you know, and recognizing how they fit and which I should be, uh, you know, doing the focusing. And so I think, you know, I've just listed 
three um, different um, indigenous practices that um, are already setting up um, the social systems for success in terms of accessing, say, climate change information or, you know, what what other what in, what other um, information that might be available to them to address their their needs. And I feel like we have so much, I mean, so much to learn from that. It's like those frameworks have been existing for, you know, millennia. <laughs> they are there. And I think it's, you know, those they should be applied to the way Western, you know, countries, Western science is doing things, you know, instead of being the other way around where most of the time it's like Western science is, you know, being always the main, like the the focus and the framework to use, considering only local knowledge or traditional knowledge as, you know, complementary or just to double check, you know, everything is fine or just to check a box. So I feel like, yeah, there is so much work to do there and and really to recognize the value of those frameworks that have been going on, you know, yeah, forever and that, you know, work, you know. So, yeah, so I really hope um, we go more this way. And uh, and I definitely also share on the ESPN website uh Maybe the link to to the resources where you mentioned, you know, the different knowledges from, you know, from New Zealand to Hawaii to, you know, uh, Canada, and um, I'll definitely do that. And and talking about that, also, I'm I'm curious, um, what do you think of of the future? In a sense, you know, with climate change, like now to address those. You know, right now, people want to find quick solutions to, I mean, short-term solutions to climate change because it's an issue we've been taking a long time to address. We've been knowing of the threat for a while, but now, like every time when there is, you know, a disaster, something coming, you know, really close, suddenly people are like, okay, we have to do really thing really fast um, to address some of the present needs or the ones that are going to happen in the short term. And and what do you think of that approach, especially when we talked about more like, you know, cultural knowledge and indigenous knowledge, like how can we do something that is more so like make sure it's long term and we don't repeat the same mistakes by sometimes rushing it to some some quick solutions? Yeah, you know, that's, uh, again, uh, I feel like all, all of our uh, questions in our conversation uh, today keep circling back to things you might call grand challenges and um, <laughs> yeah. really, really big tasks ahead of us. But, uh, you know, we're talking about the ocean, climate change and uh, cultural practices. So um, I think we we should expect it to, to go that way. Um, you know, some of my initial thoughts on that is, you know, it, it, it's complicated because some of it is um, human nature is following a disaster. There's a need to respond to, um, to you know, mend, uh, you know, what is broken um, so that you can get to a place of, you know, where you can maybe start entering a, a phase of change. And I think it, it's a little difficult to change in the midst of a disaster, there needs to be a 
recovery period and recovery needs to start shifting, you know, not just kind of being transformed into a new state, but transitioning towards a new state. And I think some of the things that might be useful, um, and I'd love to, you know, engage in more conversations about this um, with, you know, with other um, academics, uh, cultural practitioners, um, you know, uh, just people who are curious about the topic is you know, understanding, um, you know, what is the worst case scenario for for different communities in terms of climate change, right? Like, is um, is is are rising sea levels um, the worst case scenario for um, for island communities, or is forced <laughs> is forced migration and even planned relocation a wor- the worst case scenario? Um, you know that you know. In some uh, in some spheres, you hear about um, the concept of dignity uh, being really important when it comes to climate adaptation, and I think that sometimes the the more Western view looks at well, can we can we save all the material goods that we have, and and that's like climate adaptation is that our homes will no longer be impacted by um, rising sea levels or hurricanes, um, you know, and I grew up, uh, like Saipan is in what is sometimes called Typhoon Alley in terms of, um, uh, Micronesia, we get the most, um, direct paths of typhoons. Um, you know, the Philippines just to the West of us, uh, receive even more than we do, but we usually get the, the front end and they get like <laughs> the, the real business end uh, of the typhoons. Um, but you know, typhoons were a regular occurrence, really bad typhoons were a regular occurrence and, you know, um, how you adapt to these things, like, would it be great to never have typhoons? Potentially, <laughs> potentially like not having to deal with, with really catastrophic storms, um, would be, you know, the best case scenario, but dealing with the bad storms, but having the means and the respect to, you know, adapt and live with those, um, environmental conditions is is a different conversation. So I I don't want to come off and saying that like, we need to accept climate change and its impacts, but I think it is important to, you know, when we engage with communities, asking them, what do you feel, you know, um, individually and collectively is the worst case scenario? So then we can start helping and working with and supporting communities and places to avoid their worst case scenario. Because, you know, especially for indigenous cultures or people and, and cultures, um, some, some of the worst things imaginable, like land dispossession, have already happened and so climate change is not the worst thing that has happened to them. It's not their nightmare scenario, right? The nightmare has already happened. Um, and so how you work with these communities to, you know, get to a state that is um, not the worst case scenario is, is the most important thing. And you can't just assume that a climate impact is the worst case scenario. Um, and, you know, because a lot of these problems like climate change are in, are 
interlinked with capitalism, interlinked to colonialism, that maybe if you address the colonial problem first, like you can have kind of this feedback effect that allows for better climate adaptation. Um, and so, yeah, so, I, so the way I've been kind of uh, exploring this space is, you know, when you're working with the community is to ask them like, what, what are you most afraid of? Um, you know, and, and starting the conversation there as opposed to here are the climate impacts you're going to have. Let's work on those because maybe you're you're missing um, the perspective that um, really brings them in to show that like you care about them as a community and a group of people as opposed to I care about climate change and I see that climate change is going to impact you. Um, so I, I think that would be like an interesting conversation to engage with. Um, to figure out like, are, are we actually, the communities we're working with, are we actually talking to them about the things that matter uh, the most to them? Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think it's a discussion, yeah, like to, because you have so many different groups involved, like working with different communities, like, you know, federal agencies, state agencies, and, you know, nonprofits. I mean, uh, and after people, you know, on the, on the ground, like the local government and, and others in academia. And I mean, there's like a long list of people who like identify, try to find solutions to problems, but after sometimes, is it the right problem? You know, uh, is it the right needs that have been addressed? And I think there's been more effort definitely going this way, um, but it's something, it's it's work that takes time and sometimes the problem then I think comes back always to sometimes funding and I think the timeline sometimes for funding is like yeah you have to do this project during this certain amount of time this amount of money and and it's hard because it takes a long time to work with communities and identify problems and after like just find solutions over the long term not just do a project for a couple of years and after that's it so I think there's still a need for some alignment there too as well uh, so we can have the whole thing like you know working well and and moving forward um, and I don't know yeah about your thoughts about that or if you see any other challenges that you know to to work with communities mm -hmm. yeah I, I definitely agree that um, you know timelines and understanding of process when it comes to working with communities and this isn't even like just indigenous communities but any community is that right trust building is a process and um like you cannot and should not uh discount like how long that process takes to really um, make sure that whatever solutions you come up with you know um work and i think investing like money and time into the trust building phase allows um you know failure to happen <laughs> um and you know I, this is like again maybe another conversation uh, that'd be really interesting to have but um right sometimes if like if you don't have good trust with um partners and you fail um, there's usually not a, a second chance, um, right? Usually the relationship ends if like you failed me and I didn't trust you. And so I have no 
reason to to come back into this relationship. And so, you know, investing uh, in the time and the people uh, and building trust so that you have the space to fail because these challenges are really big. They're really complex. They're really difficult. They're really hard. And, you know, I think most communities, um, again, not just indigenous, but just communities in general, silver, silver bullets to, um, to their problems would be nice, but partners who, you know, will have your back for the long term would probably be preferred. Um, right. Like, because we know that um, these panacea type um, solutions, like they're exceedingly rare. They are highly context specific. Um, but if we maybe as a industry, as a sector, um, as a practice, um, really thought about like, can we ensure that we have the systems um, to build the trust so that if we fail, we can try again and we can try again. Um, Cause I think that's what um, most communities and people who are uh, in highly precarious social and environmental situations need is they need someone who's gonna be there for the long term and will, um, will constantly come back and be an honest um, broker and admit when they fail and like be like, all right, so we thought this was gonna work. Here's why it didn't, so let's, Let's try this again. Like, what were you feeling when this process didn't work for you or when this failure happened? Um, you know, again, I think there's a lot of things that um, we we don't talk about that we should be talking about. And, you know, talking about how to design um, failure into your research program or your uh, uh, planning partnership with um, communities uh, could probably, it might add on a little bit of time, but I think um, that front end work probably pays off on the back end. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And uh, and after it's something like, yeah, people, yeah, it, it can be intimidating too. I can see depending where you work and how to, to do this kind of work, reach out to communities, but, and it can be frustrating <laughs> too. So, you know, but on one side, like you said, it's really, it, it, it's needed. It's needed because after, if it fails, it's also God's own and going to be passed on, you know, um, almost like over, yeah, over generations, like for example. Yeah. And because in, even through the whole community, because after people, you know, talk with each other and there is a feel for it and yeah, so definitely, <laughs> something to, to consider seriously. And um, and also I wanted to, to address because I've seen that recently you um, wrote a book review for science. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was a, um, you know, I, I got an invitation in uh, my inbox and um, I, I, I'm an avid book reader and I never thought I'd actually write a, a book review uh, in this form. So it was a fun change of pace in terms of the type of writing I do. Um, it felt a bit like doing a book report um, from uh, high school, uh, which was which was really fun. And it was a great, great book. Um, 
and I had a lot of fun uh, doing it. So it was a book on uh, coral reefs. Uh, it was called Life on the Rocks. And um, the story follows um, kind of the plight of coral reefs uh, following the big uh, 2015 to 2017 bleaching event. And what are we as a global research community going to do um, to solve the problem? Um, but it also uh, chronicles um, the author, um, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, I think it's Julie Burwald. Um, it chronicles her uh, journey with her daughter, who's um, working through a recently diagnosed um, neurological disorder, um, and kind of talks about some of the parallels um, between the two. And uh, what comes up a lot is um, you know, partnerships and cooperation. So a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. And so uh, as I was reading the book and having to craft this re review, um, I, I was uh, a little surprised and like, uh, you know, if it felt good, be like, oh, like, I feel like I can actually, um, it's not a stretch for me to um, bring in some of my own like thoughts and uh, work into this review and not just kind of have it be a, um, dry review of the text, but really talking about how this story can fit in and really unlock some thinking that I think is important, you know, and it's about partnerships and, and trust building because um, uh, the author, she talks about um, the trust building, um, you know, the evolution of the trust between her and her daughter and having to let go of some of uh the things that she felt like she had control over in order to unlock uh, her daughter's ability to um, go through some self-discovery, some growth, uh, some comfort with, um, you know, the current state of affairs. And, you know, I think there's a lot of um, similarities we could maybe uh, map on to, you know, our, our global problems like climate change of, you know, maybe if uh, traditional global powers let go of some of uh, the things they think that they have to cling on to in order for progress, uh, whatever that might mean to happen, you know, maybe that's actually holding us back. And if they can let go and actually let um, the, the people, places uh, who are struggling the most work out those issues themselves, you know, we might be able to have big breakthroughs, um, you know, collectively, um, right? So like her, her household was not functioning very well, given the current, the status quo, and there had to be a change in relationship, a building of trust in order for a better um, condition to emerge. And so, you know, I, I would definitely recommend folks um, pick up uh, the book. I, I get no um, kickbacks for recommending the book. So I feel, I feel safe making that recommendation. Um, and hopefully they, they see some of the same things I saw in the book. Um, and um, hopefully they see different things that I didn't see. And I'd love uh, for folks to reach out uh, and tell me what they thought about the book. Um, if folks want to read the review, um, they can find it on, uh, there's a link that people can get to through my website. So I'll make sure that you have um, that link as well. Yeah, thanks. I will definitely share, you know, the, the link of your review and also information about the book. And uh, 
yeah, now it's uh, on my list of, you know, books to read. And this list uh, doesn't stop growing, so I need to catch up. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a big problem for all of us. Um, it's just the, the growing stack of books. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, I'd like to quickly talk about some kind of project you have maybe in mind, or maybe yourself, who knows, having your own podcast one day on... And having also developing this maybe um, kind of like, I would say like game in a sense, like, uh, I mean, not game, but it's like because it's using your own research of basically climate change, like you mentioned, for example, me, I, you know, live in Corsica. I mean, I'm from Corsica and for example, with climate change, like in the future, which place will have, you know, the same climate as Corsica in the future and I think it was something that you wanted to to explore, you know, was asking people these kind of questions, like where you're from and where do you think would be the next place that, you know, will have the same climate as where you are now. Um, even if it can be, you know, also a little heavy, it's also bring, you know, the, the curiosity of people to say, yeah, things are changing. And I think it's a way also to accept maybe the change that is going to happen. Yeah. And also the idea of you and, and this podcast. Yeah, um, so I am, in addition to reading a lot of books and <laughs> and buying and not reading even more books, I listen to a lot of podcasts and subscribe and download more podcast episodes uh, than I listen to. And so I figured maybe a, a good remedy to not listening to a lot of podcasts that I want to would be to... Uh, just create my own podcast that maybe someone else can add to their queue and maybe not ever get to. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the podcast idea I had would be to use you know some of that research I was talking about earlier I developed during my PhD, which is identifying these um, climate analogs or these environmental analogs and, you know, having a guest, maybe um, a certain podcast host I'm talking to now, and right, ask them, you know, like, where's your favorite place in the ocean, you know, and really explore people's, um, you know, attachment, emotional connection to, to place and space. And, um, you know, like, really build that these places aren't just um, temperature, <laughs> oxygen concentration, um, ocean acidity. You know, they're not just these biogeochemical conditions, but they're they're lived experiences. And you know, what happens when those conditions and those experiences are transported to somewhere else in in the world? You know. Um, I, I've done this for myself. You know, I, I have access to the model. And so I've seen, um, you know, where are some of the potential locations for the most similar environment um, to Saipan today would be in the future. And, you know, the number of places that that could be um, become exceedingly small as uh, climate change uh, unfolds. And, you know, you, you start to feel um, kind of, more and more intense emotions arise as you see fewer and fewer places that, you know, um, resemble the place that you know and love existing into the future. And, you know, I, like you mentioned, like that could be very heavy uh, topics to dig into, but um, I think, um, you know, that could really un unlock more of the 
emotion and lived um, experience that's necessary to to build trust, right? When you make these emotional connections to a place and to a person, you, you might be more trusting in some of the scarier uh, futures because you know you're not alone. Um, and so uh, if I ever find uh, the free time or make the free time, uh, yeah, that should be the, the operative word. I need to make the free time to make this happen. But um, it's definitely something I'm uh, excited about the possibility of doing. Yeah, no, I, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, it sounds like I, I know who uh, potentially a first guest could be. So. <laughs> yeah, keep me posted. <laughs> and um, I wanted to ask you, do you have any for this episode, like, any final words you'd like to share, like, um, you know, a personal message, um, you know, that something you would like to recommend uh, to our audience? Um, so if I had to, like, recommend um, something to, to the audience, and especially if there's other, um, you know, early career, um, you know, emerging uh thinkers and practitioners in ocean science, conservation, and management. It's, you know, to, you know, some of the things we talked about today were, um, you know, trust and, and failure uh, were two things that kind of popped up. And I think both of those uh, concepts and actions, you know, because you have to do something to trust someone and you have to if, do something to fail, but they, they f- kind of sit in this bowl of, vulnerability. And I would, you know, definitely encourage folks to lean into that vulnerability, like have the hard conversation with your advisor, with your colleague, with your funder, you know, about, you know, the really difficult stuff so that you can build that trust and uh, allow each other to to fail. Um, because I think if, if, if you're too worried about failing and there are degrees to failing, right? There's like, mm-hmm. the world has ended. <laughs> there's that one end and there's like, I missed a deadline and I can get it to you in 12 hours. You know, like there are degrees to failure, but regardless of what degree you're at, you know, having solid trust, which comes from being vulnerable, um, allows you to to get past those failures. And I think that's uh, one form of resilience is getting past a failure. It might not necessarily be returning to the previous unfailed state, but it's just moving on to the next thing and, you know, not being stuck or completely removed. And so um, just be vulnerable. And that's what, that's what I would ask everyone to, to do. No, oh, thank you. And, and, yeah, I think it's really important because it also allows you to, I mean, to learn also so much about yourself and to grow and to embrace that is, it's a learning moment. So I think it's like just to view those failures as learning moments to to do better and to be better. So I think, yeah, try to change the, the perspective on that. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And... Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a pleasure to have you today uh, on Rising Sea Voices. And um, it was really inspiring too. 
and and hopeful. You know, even if climate change is a tough topic, it can be heavy. I think by you know sharing uh, the different ways we can you know work together and you know tackle challenges, it's it's hopeful too. So, yeah, thank you for for sharing all that with us. Yeah, oh, uh, Felicia, it's, uh, it's it's been my my great pleasure, and thank you for inviting me to um, sh- share some of my stories, some of my thoughts. Um, yeah, I I really hope that you know people are able to to latch on to what you just said. You know that these are heavy, challenging times, um, but if we're vulnerable and we can find ways to build um, and strengthen the trust between each other, even the bad uh outcomes will be tolerable because you won't be alone thank you steven thank you for listening to this episode of the rising sea voices podcast and thank you to the american shoreline podcast network and coastal news today for hosting this show if you would like to learn more about the rising sea voices podcast and other podcasts on espn go to coastalnewstoday.com there you can find more information on the guests that appear on my show And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you get your pod. Also, you or someone you know could be my next guest. Email me at felicia at coastalnewstoday.com or DM me on Twitter at Fometa Short to send me your ideas. Thank you for listening and take care.